Hello and welcome to a new episode of the BIM Voice podcast. Today we have the pleasure to talk with a research associate at the University of Cambridge and host of Beyond BIM podcast. Welcome, Erika Parn. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Let's start by uh, telling us a little bit who are you and what are you doing? Sure. So I am a research associate at the University of Cambridge and specifically at the Centre for Digital Built Britain and Cambridge Service Alliance. So it's a crossover between two research centres. On the one hand, Digital Built Britain is trying to understand or uncover what are the benefits and the value of digitally twinning UK's critical infrastructure. On the other hand, Cambridge Service Alliance is focused on what are the trends with business models and servitization across all different sectors. So more focused on the business model and operation. Uh-huh. And my research is really focused on with this concept of digital twins, which is essentially for the built environment akin to the next stage from BIM, how do we better make use of it in terms of business models and how can we form business model innovations through the use of digital twins? So it's largely focused on actually learning from the more advanced sectors that are using digital twins like aviation, automotive sectors, and seeing what types of business models have they come up with so far in order to create value for multiple stakeholders with that digital twin effectively. And then on my spare time, I also run the Beyond BIM podcast, which is very similar to yours. And I'm trying to gauge and connect with researchers and practitioners on what are the technologies that are effectively pushing us to the next stage beyond BIM, be it uh, digital twins or other um, interesting technologies and emerging techniques such as artificial intelligence. But at the core, the foundation will be for us in the built environment, the use of BIM. I understand. That's very interesting. Uh, all the research and the podcast, of course. The podcast used to be a little bit more technical than, than this one. And you have many researchers? Yes, I try to connect with academics and researchers because there isn't a lot of platforms where they can freely talk about their research and industry may not be aware because they wouldn't have the same access to peer-reviewed academic papers. They might not have the same interest to read these types of publications. So a podcast was really a quicker means to spread and disseminate what research is ongoing in the built environment to try and also educate industry on what we're trying to tinker with in academia. I understand. Yeah. And uh, of course, trying to find some of these uh, experiments and maybe uh, use them, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. To try and connect um, academics with industry practitioners, it's sort of a way to try and not only disseminate, but maybe even inspire new innovations in industry. Yes, of course. If we go from, uh, uh, from, from the name Beyond BIM, so BIM is very basic. So let's start with that. Uh, what is your interpretation of BIM as uh, building information modeling? In terms of what it is now or what it could be? <laughs> 
you you can go with both you can go even with uh, three versions like what used to be and what is now and what my might be or what needs to be yeah i would say that um specifically with beyond bim as a podcast when i first started it i was looking at uh core seven dimensions which are kind of pushing us to the next stage of, of use of bim and those included things like sensing or sensor-based capabilities and this forms as part of what we know is necessary with digital twins as well the other dimension includes things like simulation and artificial intelligence or we could say instead of artificial intelligence we can use the term advanced simulation so the use of things like machine learning to try and enhance the accuracy of your simulations or predictability of of your simulations then there are other aspects that i looked into or other dimensions which are we could class them as emerging technologies that are trying to merge with bim things like blockchain so the use of this type of um, cryptography i believe in the it world so it's just one way of securing the transfer of information as well so blockchain is certainly another part or another facet that can quite well link with the spread or sharing of information through BIM. Uh, so we have advanced simulation, blockchain, and uh, sensor-based technologies. And the other dimension was, of course, things like robotics. So on the construction side specifically, this is uh, something that is gaining increased prominence and particularly now where we're faced in a world where we're constantly trying to work remotely. So the increased use of robotics and its incorporation into the design data from BIM was another area of interest specifically. I'm trying to remember all the seven dimensions. Uh, robotics, AI, blockchain. I'm sure there are a few more, but um, essentially it was emerging tech. So emerging tech that kind of springs us to the next level of uh, informatization of design data throughout the building's life cycle effectively, be it at the early design stages or during construction or during its operation. If you wish, I can, uh, I, I found the list, uh, you mentioned the seven things. Uh, one would be laser scanning. Uh, I think you did not mention that. Oh, yes. So, okay. So the other dimension is, again, laser scanning or optoelectronics. So optoelectronics is, again, also improving in its capacity and capabilities. And we're seeing that laser scanning or LIDAR is effectively being used to monitor assets and also to monitor activities on site. And then the other one, I believe, was maybe perhaps linked to laser scanning. You have GIS as well. Yes, GIS is certainly another part to try and, you know, in in the world of digitizing everything, if it's not located or localized, it's uh, of less value. And it's the same thing with all of the internet services that we're using. If we cannot locate it in a, a digital platform, it's of very little value. So GIS will play a huge role in, you know, pushing that forward. I'm not sure if I included photogrammetry, but uh, photogrammetry is kind of like the, um, the next stage as well with LIDAR and laser scanning because photogrammetry is kind of like 
combining computer vision technology, which is probably the other one that I'm including there as well, and also this um, machine learning capabilities. So you can kind of also merge these dimensions, like I mentioned. So computer vision together with machine learning to try and improve the accuracy of what's known as photogrammetry. So eliminating the use of LIDAR effectively. Yes, yes. And especially because uh, LIDAR, it's a quite expensive uh, technology. Uh, not, or not necessarily technology, but the tools you need to buy are quite expensive. Uh, meanwhile, Correct. you can scan uh, for, uh, with, for video uh, with a smartphone. Uh, everybody can do that and uh, just uh, get it processed by machine learning. Exactly. So it's, it's um, kind of like the next stage as you say, to improve its affordability, accessibility, it's an innovation. And here you're combining two of those dimensions together to form a new innovation. So again, in a similar vein uh, with robotics, we know that robotics will be relying on things like both photogrammetry and LIDAR in order to navigate through the spaces. So these dimensions don't just act alone. They require other emerging technology and infrastructure to support them in their functions. But these were kind of the starting points for um, the interviews that we conducted with Beyond BIM to try and gauge what are the latest developments in AI, in robotics? How does it actually incorporate with the use of BIM? In some cases, the researchers quite frankly said, well, this has not been incorporated with BIM. It's been tested and piloted as a standalone technology, but there is merit to combine it with design data, which is being used to monitor, for instance, activities on site. Yeah. I think you mentioned also hybrid technologies. What do you mean by that? So hybrid technologies is exactly what I mentioned earlier, which is where you combine one or two of the dimensions to form another. So essentially it's the combination of any of those dimensions to form what I mentioned earlier, such as photogrammetry. That would be a hybrid between two of the dimensions. I understand. Uh, so was this um, like uh the the definition of future beam like what we uh, we wish beam to be or uh, like what we need to function uh, for a ideal situation or yeah it's it's very difficult to um now when i look back at these dimensions they're quite restrictive i would probably lean into thinking about more about what is the value that we get from the technology? So certainly one key core value with all of these is autonomy. Everything is, is moving towards autonomy. And in order to do so, that's why we're coming up with these hybrid technologies or solutions. That's the value that we're getting out of it, autonomy. So I would say that in terms of value of BIM and what it is or what it could be in the future, one of the values is how do we get autonomy with BIM? Of course, the other values would be, as we all know, productivity or efficiency, right? These are not new terms. We're constantly chasing after these types of values. And, um, but for myself, um, starting at the Center for Digital Build Britain, it gave me another new angle or insight into the whole digitization, which is 
do businesses, even if they digitize, and even if they invest a lot of money into technology and make claims of productivity, does their business actually become more profitable or more resilient as a result of it? Is there any business model innovation at the back of it? And this is something that um, I've come across with other researchers, which is productivity paradox that, yes, there is a lot of technology out there, and but the productivity paradox, if, if I've understood it correctly, is this, that irrespective of the increased amount of technology, we're still not more productive. So what is hindering us? And one hypothesis is that actually what's hindering us is that the businesses aren't innovating their business models. It isn't necessarily about investment into technology. Sometimes the winners are those that can innovate with the business model. And this has been, at least in the service and business-related journals, it's been heralded that business model innovation is actually what holds a lot of um, the success behind some of the bigger names that we see uh, with platforms like Uber, Airbnb. These are effectively business model innovations, not technology innovations. Sure. But do you see... Uh, do you see any patterns? Do you see any possible business models uh, for for AAC that might work? Yeah, so one of the things that we are trying to understand better, at least in the AEC, is how do we can transform into a state of open innovation, which what which is what we're seeing in the IT sector, right? So the sharing of platforms that help uh, not just your own business, but others to create that, as you have heard of it, the network effect, a whole ecosystem of players that gain value from, from the innovation or the technology. So one example of this type of business model innovation in construction is the platform uh, method or the modern method of construction, in which case we're using a physical platform to form a part of kits to construct uh, kind of modular buildings, be it uh, residential or educational. That is a physical platform. But what about a digital platform? If we have a digital twin of a certain um, critical asset in a building, could the data from its lifespan or performance data be of value to other designers, to other building owners? Could that data be digitized and sold? So this is, again, new business models whereby we're not just providing design services or construction services. We're also thinking about um, other servitizations, such as selling of data of those assets. Those are some of the business model innovations that we're exploring and trying to understand what types of platforms could be needed in in the AECO ecosystem and how we can nudge the industry more into um, open innovation. These examples focus more on, on the asset owners, uh, on the clients, right? Uh, but one of the issues we, we see in, in AAC is the, is the supply chain, right? Because we have so many actors, it's so uh, broken up. In, uh, did you to come up with a a more holistic kind of way to to make things and uh, regarding the 
the modularization or how you called it platform construction platform construction uh, that might work but and uh, i'm an optimist myself but it's i'm i think it's limited um that doesn't mean that we don't need to try it of course uh, what what i want to say with this is like yeah that might work for uh, residential buildings for uh, a square very very um, simple if you if you can say like that geometrical uh, structures right but correct when you go to infrastructure you already uh, go into an um, yeah, entire complete uh, new uh, medium uh, where might uh, maybe uh, might work to a point but uh, it's it's very it, it's very there are many many things that varies in in uh, when you build roads when you build tunnels when you build bridges when you build uh, retaining walls and such right yeah so uh, i'm i'm not trying to punch holes in your uh, in your ideas uh, i i uh, i also think like a combination of things uh, is necessary for this but yeah that that's a big big challenge um, and this is something i, I talk a lot with uh, the guests i have uh, on the podcast about uh, how how can we find a better way uh, of uh, working together and uh, uh, regarding sharing data because you mentioned about that uh, digital twin and sell the data and such like collaboration is another taboo in our industry between actors and not only between yeah between actors but uh, not only across the supply chain but we have design companies that don't work together we have uh, builders that don't work together we have customers that don't work together right so correct i, I yeah. know it's it's scary when you think like that and uh, i'm not saying that just to uh, relax and yeah we cannot do anything it's exactly the opposite i'm i'm trying to lay out the ground and uh, uh, to to brainstorm what can we do how can we approach it in a different way to to make something uh, revolutionary well certainly in the research with the platform construction methods right now they're piloting this method and there is the case and again the incentive here is actually to try and um, encourage platform construction methods with publicly procured projects so it's not for all projects and it's very clear from the outset that this method isn't one for um, all uh, designs and all types of assets necessarily and um, when it comes to uh, fragmentation of the supply chain industries again even if we look at examples of the more advanced sectors aviation automotive where we're continuously trying to adopt some of the ideas and management theories then even there uh, when doing the research from our end they encounter similar problems, even with digital twins. So the OEMs do not necessarily want to share all of their digital data with the other OEMs. So we have examples of digital twins of engines, but what about the OEMs sharing enough data to cover the entire aircraft? So it's the problem, not just in the built environment sector, it's a, a reoccurring phenomenon. It doesn't confine to just us. and again the the idea of what are the business model innovations that overcome some of these barriers are 
the topics of interest to us. So what are the business model innovations that overcome these actors who normally would be competing against one another, who are now actually dependent on a digital platform uh, in order for them to operate? I see. Uh, and um, uh, at the end of the day, uh, that's good that there are, there are uh, public projects looking into the platform uh, to use this. Uh, but um, because uh, they are the biggest losers in this uh, situation right now, because they pay and they, they pay for inefficiency and uh, very low productivity. And not because uh, somebody doesn't want to be productive, but be just because of not trying to employ new, new and better, more effective ways of work, right? Uh, and uh, that needs to start there, I'm sure. Uh, but how do you uh, get to a critical mass of owners or um, clients that are, that are uh, very interested to look more into this and try to, to push it forward? Yeah, there's, again, that's not my, I wouldn't say that I have real expertise on how we can get critical mass with the owners or the clients. It's a difficult thing to gauge. A lot of the innovation, remember it, as you say, it starts out with publicly procured projects. It starts with public funding, public money. And then for that innovation or that concept to disseminate into the wider uh, public, into the private sector will take some time. Um, we are kind of setting the foundation here, the laying the groundwork, but the hope is that eventually the private sector will take these ideas and quickly turn them around into, um, again, commercial solutions. And that's just the order of things with research and innovation. It's publicly funded, it's slow, it takes time to disseminate, but in the end, eventually, it does uh, disseminate, but through the private sector, private actors who will take on that innovation. And there's some criticisms about this as well, right? They don't necessarily pay much for these innovations. And again, there there's some, um, you know, debate around this. Uh, what's the value of um, publicly funded innovation and how long will it take until it then spurs on to the, into the private sector? But certainly the whole essence of what we're doing at CDBB and in Cambridge is Again, we're starting and laying the groundwork and trying to understand what the potential value would be of platform construction and as well of digital twins with the hopes that, again, the private sector actors will try and pilot these technologies as well and hopefully take some of the concepts on board. And we do have an example of a private, um, private actors piloting the same platform construction method. So we are seeing... At, the, at this early stage, the pilot testing, even with private um, actors. That's good. That's a very positive sign then. Yeah. And, and again, my assumption here is that it all will just take some time before these techniques disseminate. Or again, we don't know. We, we aren't entirely sure what the final results will be. These are ongoing pilot projects and of course somebody's got to do it somebody's got to pilot it first somebody's got to fail to then call it an innovation yeah 
if we go over to to startups what do you think about startups in aac uh, is there room for others do we have enough that have made any impact so far yeah so i think that yeah absolutely there is room for startups this might not necessarily be the view of the larger players but even they rely on startups really their whole many of the bigger actors operational model is a reliance on the innovation of startups so buying up the failures of the startups and getting the best parts of of these innovations and pushing them forward so there is a whole ecosystem that is reliant on startup companies to go out there to pilot new technologies and some of these startups try and disrupt they try and come up with the next big thing to change the way that we are doing things in the built environment sector and they may have early origins in a small startup company they are not necessarily ideas that come from research labs in bigger uh, conglomerates or bigger companies some of the ideas will be coming from smaller startups many of these startups have a um an approach which again this is like the classical term of being disrupted right is that they're very agile and responsive to the market needs they're much quicker to respond to the potential needs and demands of the market and they're they have a an approach which is more flexible when it comes to the business model because as a startup all you're doing most of the beginning is trying to figure out what is your business model so you're flexible with that way of thinking and that's where we're seeing examples of where startups can potentially disrupt because they continuously tweak and test their business models whereas larger organizations wouldn't have the same flexibility to pivot their main business model and that's the beauty of the startups is that they're more agile and flexible and they do think about the business model yeah uh, do you have any examples around you maybe in uh, in uk of any startup that uh, that are uh, doing uh, something nice or uh, internationally no? it can be international as well yeah so let me just think in the built environment okay i'll i'll give you an example from when i was talking about platforms and you know how these startups are trying to overcome the bigger companies so i'll give you an example from um automotive sector so as we know our vehicles or or cars uh, at least the newer models are also capable of aggregating data and sending that back to the manufacturers on what the vehicle is is doing effectively now how do startups in automotive sector try and overcome uh this barrier that they have no access to the data in the vehicle so they can't come up with digital solutions or platforms that may give insight to the driver or the owner of that vehicle well there are some startups that have come up with these what's called dongles that connect to the car they directly bypass the OEM uh, and their control of the data in that vehicle so these are like akin to like a you know if you think about a computer we have a USB they have a little dongle that you can plug into the car this is a way that startup companies have tried to overcome uh, OEMs who are the gatekeepers of data 
And we can see that there are similar issues in buildings as well. We have gatekeepers of data who have access to the data within that building. There are ways to overcome that in buildings as well, installing a gateway and getting access to all the sensor-based data of that building. So there will be startups that are thinking about how do we bypass the bigger players to get access to the data to come up with new digital solutions. So a lot of the innovation is around product services. So pairing a product with additional add-on services. And these may be not physical services, but just digital services. So in the case of the automotive sector, these startups are using dongles as a way to overcome access to data in order to come up with new mobile applications that can provide various different services, be it connecting you with the best um, automotive uh, service providers, giving you um, updates and data about your vehicle, uh, for instance, fleet management applications to manage vehicles. So a lot of it is in the servitization domain. So, and a reliance on platforms. So formation of digital platforms is another kind of trend that we're seeing. So these are examples of startups that are really trying to um, fight against the bigger players and find avenues or ways to go around them. But we are seeing examples of startups that have now managed to partner with the bigger OEMs, have managed to partner with companies like Mercedes, BMW, because the bigger OEMs are seeing that they cannot really um, like, like stay as the gatekeepers of the data. Let the other smaller players come up with a effective digital services because it will make our vehicles more attractive to the consumer market, to the buyers. So we are becoming so accustomed to digital services and having everything at our fingertips that the bigger OEMs are starting to realize, even in the automotive sector, that they can no longer fight the fight. They are beginning to partner with these companies to make their vehicles more attractive as an offering. Yeah. Do you know how they, they treat uh, privacy? This sounds like uh, a very uh, gray area for, for privacy. Like if you set a dongle in the car and you just uh, give away your entire information about yourself. You know, putting the dongle in the car is actually what the owner of the vehicle would be doing. So as you, the owner of the vehicle, you're saying, yes, I want these digital services to accompany my vehicle. So I'm installing this dongle to get access to those services. Oh, I understand. It's like, um, you know, it's, it's a way for you as a vehicle owner to expand the capabilities. And the all of this is about, yeah, about getting insights into your vehicle and other potential services, which you may not have had access to before. So some of the dongle, uh, Providers include Mojo, Z, Vinly, and Automile. And the interesting thing is that, the, of course, one of the biggest reasons why the OEMs, you know, their argument against these dongles is cybersecurity. So, because again, uh, if we're talking about these smaller service providers, are they as rigorous when it comes to information security and cybersecurity? And this is still, we're talking about a cyber physical threat or vulnerability because 
it's not only connected to the data of the vehicle, but potentially the operation of that vehicle, depending on when it was manufactured. But that's, that's been one of the biggest arguments against these strategies. So what they've done in return is, okay, why don't we start to partner up with some of these uh, platform providers and also make our vehicles more attractive to the potential buyer with the services that they can now uh, get access to. So it's, it's really about the after-sale services and how do you servitize the data and the insights potentially. And it will be the same thing with buildings as well. And we're starting to see examples of this in in the built environment with things like mobile applications. So I think it was, there's an application called Comfy. It's one that uh, I believe I discussed in my previous Beyond BIM episode, which is effectively a mobile app to support wayfinding in a building. Obviously that will rely on 3D model, design data of the building. This will become much better in public spaces for those that need to find themselves within the buildings, let's say complex airports, train stations, this becomes something more intuitive for the everyday occupant of that building. And these are examples of servitizing that data, which may come from either the ongoing life cycle of the building itself, or in the case of the Comfy app, it's the use of the design data. And we're going to see that um, again, seeing the value of that right now is quite clear. We want to monitor how many occupants or passengers we have within the train station or airport. We want to keep our passengers, our occupants safe. So these types of services will become increased in demand. This is the assumption because of the current climate that we're in. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Like a very simple example, like I've been uh, in a mall yesterday and I did not know where to find the shop and I used the big screen, which everybody uses, right? Which now yeah. might be dangerous. But Correct. then you get an application and you just navigate yourself. Like, how do I get there? And you get it, you have it in your hands with the GPS. You can you, you can be guided in to the, to the front of the store, right? Correct, yeah. And, and this is even the more natural way for us as consumers to uh, to operate in the world. We, we navigate with our, most of us navigate with our phones already. And why not combine that in a public building setting as well? I think Google Maps has a function of inside navigation. I never used it. I don't know how it works and how accurate it is. Yeah, I think I... I tried that once. It was first time I tried it was when I was in Japan, actually. And I never noticed this feature of Google Maps before until I was in Japan in a giant shopping mall. And I realized that I could actually navigate between the levels of that building. And I thought, what a great thing. How come I've not come across this in other other buildings? But maybe perhaps this is, again, access to data, building owners being uh, supportive of sharing that, that level of detail with a big service provider like Google. So, um, but yeah, again, as you say, it's more intuitive and it's going to become more in demand as we don't want to really touch surfaces that others have 
necessarily been touching. So it makes sense. But also in terms of safety for management of how many people we want to access our buildings, it gives transparency to those that manage the buildings themselves. If we need to have a certain threshold of people within a certain uh, floor space area, this is the way to do it. And it really relies on the consent of the consumer to share that data. Yeah, just imagine like navigating a mall with uh, 20 uh, floors. It's going to like you, you waste a few days there <laughs> and don't find yeah. anything, right? So it would be much easier <laughs> in a few hours with an app. Absolutely, yeah. Do you know, uh, you said there is a company that has a, a, a app regarding this, how Mobify, or uh, how, how did you say? Oh, for the building navigation. It's yes. called Comfy. Comfy? Comfy. Okay. Yeah. Um, if I'm not, let me just double check. I believe this mobile app is... There might be also, um, I don't know, but this is more uh, of uh, IT field. Uh, like um, to find a way, to, a more practical way than needed to install an application for each uh, building you go in. Maybe exactly this is this company doing. Uh, maybe you have more buildings uh, that you, you use only one application. Correct. Yeah. So this is a mobile app that's been uh, developed by Siemens. And of course, Siemens is already providing a lot of services with digital twins in manufacturing. This is again one way of, you could say, a strategy of servitizing a digital twin. So in, in our current pandemic that we're living through, with this uncertainty of going back into the workspace um, and having a threshold of people within public spaces or offices, the Comfy app is, I would say the timing couldn't have been better really. If you think about it, what they're trying to do is offer an app that kind of helps you manage the office space navigation and other aspects of um, working within that physical building all in an app. So not just for those that manage the building, but also those that use the building. So the timing is really ideal. And I, I would say that I guess Siemens has the benefit of there because they already provide services in the um, let's say in the building management domain, and they have the knowledge of, again, digital twins in a manufacturing setting. So this is something that they are presenting and um, it's quite exciting if you think about it. We're not really getting a lot of services that relate to our buildings as such. As consumers of digital products, we, we're not faced with a lot of digital products that relate to buildings. We never thought that we can be entitled to something like this. We just thought that the biggest accomplish is just to, like, we need to get the, the building built. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's the yes. main goal. That's the main goal for everybody right now. And that's the wrong goal because uh, most of us are ignoring the most costing part, which is facility management and during the life cycle. Of yes, the building, that's right? right. And again, if you take the lifespan, if we're talking about the automotive aviation is thinking about the aftermarket sales sector their lifespan it goes between we're talking about eight years up to 20 years but of a building if we compare the life cycle or lifespan we're talking about 60 years in some cases of potential um, 
services that could be provided throughout its lifetime. Even 100 for uh, course, for the infrastructure, yeah. it's longer. Yes, yes. So why why not explore um, servitization strategies in the uh, certainly in the aftermarket, if we can call it aftermarket uh, sales service provisions for the building throughout its lifetime. And again, something that, of course, we have examples of this that emanate not from the built environment, but from outside the IT juggernauts, basically Google Nest. That was one example of a trial of a product that's trying to servitize or provide digital services to the homeowner. Yeah. Again, they would have the capacity to do so, certainly. Definitely. Uh, if like uh, going back a little bit to Siemens, uh, like you said, they have already digital twins and such. But not only that, if I'm not mistaken, they sell lots of sensors. They must have sensors in many, many buildings that uh, you have no idea how they can be used. Actually, yeah, you're right. So it's basically coming up with a servitization strategy for the hardware that they're selling, which makes sense. Again, it makes sense to to begin to think like this. And the the rise of servitization um, began in, of course, in 2008. We saw a lot of activity in this domain because of the recession. And if we are heading or we are already in the start or midst of a recession, this will be a potential strategy to keep some of these companies ongoing. How can we servitize and come up with a continuous revenue stream uh, with some of the products that we are selling out there? So this may be a, a strategic movement in the midst of a recession as well. Yeah. Do you know any other companies that offer this kind of services, like any compet competitors for Siemens? Mm, there was a company that I actually, it was a startup, a spin out from Cambridge, but it was sensors for infrastructure specifically. And uh, I don't remember the exact name. I can try and pull that out for you. But uh, effectively, it was a startup that started within the University of Cambridge. And it received, of course, uh, very successful funding afterwards. And again, it ties in with the whole monitoring of linear assets through sensor-based systems, quite easy to install. And it also comes with uh, additional, um, let's say, open, what we call in, in uh, IT, it's called boundary resources. So boundary resources are things like APIs that allow for other service providers to come up with new services with that hardware or that platform. So I believe that this particular startup tried to create a sensor that was easy to deploy on linear infrastructure, and that would come up with an open way to connect it with other service providers who can then come up with new services that link to that sensor. So that's part of what I mentioned earlier about open innovation and having those boundary resources. I'm talking about the technology-related resources that help other software developers come up with novel solutions that link to your hardware or your software, basically. Yes, that makes sense. And now, uh, uh, last 
note on Siemens, then uh, if they keep going in this way and uh, they start, they expand, they don't have any uh, any big uh, other uh, players around. So we might get uh, next Google, Amazon or uh, Autodesk or uh, digital twins or something else. Yeah, the, the race is on. So there's a lot of speculation. Um, can we have a digital twin platform? And if so, who will be the orchestrator of that platform? You know, um, the orchestrator of our information searches is Google right now. Well, who will be the next orchestrator of the services related to digital twins? Autodesk stands in a good position. Obviously, they have a very huge um, ecosystem of players. And they have also opted quite openly into the model of open innovation, which is to provide boundary resources such as APIs and software development toolkits, which only enhance this ecosystem dependency on them. And again, this is a positive way for companies to progress with their own business model is the, the movement into openness or open business model innovation. So, yes. yeah, so Siemens, again, in the, in, if we're talking about Siemens, they would, perhaps they are already looking into this and I don't, I myself haven't looked into this, what types of boundary resources Siemens offers, but this is like the strategic movement on the part of many of the bigger companies is to open up their platforms in order to get the other smaller startups do the heavy lifting come up with the services, come up with new solutions and come become part of our ecosystem, whether it's the Autodesk ecosystem or the Siemens ecosystem, eventually they will have to open up to create that dependency. So, yeah. I really hope we get, uh, we, we start getting uh, more innovative and uh, more um, user focused uh, uh, monopolies if I uh, can call it like that, because uh, Google, yeah, we use it, but uh, because we have no choice, we got used to it, right? But it's not ideal for us. Like they sell lots of data about everybody. They know lots of things about everybody, right? So we uh, we need, uh, like, I, I don't know too much about linked data and uh, internet uh, 3.0, but uh, yeah, there are some principles back there where um, the customer, it's much more in control of uh, his own data because this you don't own anything as a, you just have the app the app that you use but you you are very limited and you you are get, you getting exploited for this even if you uh, uh, recognize it or not it's happening yeah yeah that's right and that's um something that these uh bigger ecosystem players are very conscious about. They tread very carefully now, and there's a lot of sensitivity around how they design platforms, how data is shared, what is the ownership of the data, and um, again, the transparency to the user of that data. I, it's a very interesting topic if you go into it. I, um, I would recommend some books or or talks by Shoshana Zuboff. She does a lot of um, discussions on what she calls the surveillance capitalism. So it's quite a, already with that name, surveillance capitalism, 
uh, it doesn't point to the direction that, you know, that she's very hopeful of these companies. Yep. She did a lot of research into how the companies collect and aggregate our data. She did some very interesting uh, analogies. She said that the IT sector is the only sector that refers to its clients as users. The only other sector that does that is the pharmaceuticals. And so the, the whole really a lot of her research talks about how these service providers create services that us as consumers become almost addicted to in a similar vein as we do with pharmaceuticals and, and the drugs industries. So obviously this is another point of view and it's important to look at both sides when reading about technology or doing research into the topic. So I would say I would really recommend reading some of her work. Uh, it gives you a nice balance into seeing the both perspectives on the, the transformation and servitization and how, as you say, uh, we as the end users would like to have some say on what happens to our data. Yeah, that's interesting. Thank you for the recommendation. I'll try to, to look up for it. Blockchain. You mentioned a little bit uh, some things about blockchain. I'm also, in a way, fascinated by this technology. And uh, at the same time, I still think it's very much conceptual. It is not very used in production. And it's very much focused on uh, financial industry. And I don't know what is uh, something else, but yeah, there are uh, these uh, coins not very much outside of it but uh, the principle itself it's it's very noble and it's very good and it's very needed very much needed in our industry uh, where the trust is a big issue like the i think it's one of the biggest issue why we are we don't share we don't share information and uh, this can solve lots of problems but yeah. i'm not aware about I think there is a company from France, if I'm not mistaken, they, they do something regarding this, but I don't know how advanced it is and how, if it's used on any projects or such. Do you, have, do you know more about this? Do you know any startups or any companies dipping, uh, trying something? In terms of explicit companies, I haven't really looked into that, I'll be honest with you. But what I can say is that we, myself and a few other researchers and practitioners are, I mean, I'm part of this a group called Construction Blockchain Consortium. And I'm very happy that I got the opportunity to join them. And it's Abel Maciel who leads it. So I did an interview with Abel on Beyond BIM. And Abel is, has obviously he's leading this consortium in order to put together a white paper for the industry on all the very different applications of blockchain for construction that go beyond just the financial or fintech services. So um, I would recommend for anybody who is interested in blockchain and construction to look at CBC and have a look at their um, annual conferences and updates and publications on the topic because they are themselves trying to figure out and set some precedent or examples for the construction industry to learn from 
to try and apply blockchain into things like smart contracts and other ways of building trust into the contractual agreements that we have in place. So um, CBC is one source of information that your listeners and yourself might find of value if you want to learn more. But in terms of actual companies, I, um, I haven't got any examples in my head right now on who I've come across within specifically the construction domain. But um, the way that we're approaching, at least myself and my colleague, also Borya, he works at um, New York University in Abu Dhabi, and him and his team are looking into cybersecurity. And this is how we're approaching blockchain. So is blockchain a layer of security or additional layer of potential security when we're sharing data. So that's how we're approaching the applications of blockchain is, could it increase the security of our digital twins potentially? But there is a, I mean, I have heard arguments against this that say, well, once we have quantum computing, it will decipher any blockchain algorithm and this whole technology will become obsolete. I've heard arguments like this as well. So when I talk about blockchain, some actors in the industry are very much against it. They say there is no future in this because of quantum computing. And then when you go into the, obviously the crypto community and the blockchain community, there is a real um, belief in the transformative powers of blockchain. So there are again, two sides to this technology and it's well worth investigating um, what might be the potential pitfalls if we do have quantum computing? Will this technology still be feasible? But also to read more about all the existing applications, especially with smart contracts. Yeah, I, do, I don't think like, even if uh, the quantum computing will make it obsolete, like, yeah, that, that would be a very bad idea if you will have thousands of startups trying to do this right but if you have a handful of people trying to use time on this to put some effort in it and come up to some with some practical use for it i'm sure they they cannot be very affected about it so that's not a like if we, we're talking about two hypotheses one hypothesis on top of each other right so we don't know yet when that is going to happen right first and foremost and if you take both of these we, we, uh, if you take blockchain and uh, quantum computing, which one do you do you think it's closer to to get used by uh, by me or you? Yeah. I feel I feel blockchain is closer just because the exposure. I don't know uh, too much about quantum computing. I do, I know Google and the big players are working with this, but I don't know how much they advanced with it. So that's not a that if something is willing to try to do something with this should just try of course yeah certainly yeah if we think about time scales here again how long will it take before quantum computing once it does make its breakthroughs into the wider market the consumer market that will take some time but um in terms of how some of these bigger companies what they're thinking uh, in in the IT world, what their thoughts are on blockchain. Some of them have strategically said, no, we will not touch anything to do with blockchain. But others, as you say, we already have blockchain enabled services out there, quite a lot of them. 
we already have uh, obviously the most prominent one, as you said, it's the Bitcoin, it's the cryptocurrency application, but it's worth exploring again, as I said, it's worth exploring also about the other side. So why do some of the bigger companies who, again, let's be honest, they pay a lot of money for very clever uh, consultants to advise them on strategic decisions. Why have some of them opted to avoid blockchain is worthwhile to go and look into as well, just to have a balance of a bit opinions, hypotheses as well. That's interesting. Do you know uh, from your experience or from your knowledge, uh, some companies that have chosen to stay away from this, like Google or Facebook? Do you know any specific? I know, but not able to name some. Oh, yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. Which episode uh, is the episode you talk about blockchain? It's a bit older? Yes, this is an episode I did with Abel from UCL, the Abel Maciel, he is running the um, construction blockchain consortium, uh, but he does a lot. I mean, he really is incredible in terms of all the things he's doing at UCL with research and then his own work. Let me just get this up for you. It's one of the earlier, older episodes. Yeah, I'm asking because I, I listen to most of the most recent one. The, the yeah. this year once and I, I don't remember anything not so much about yeah blockchain. it's um it's the episode is called construction 4.0 blockchain in construction and it's with dr abel maysteel from ucl thank you i'll put it, that in the I, show notes yeah it was published five months ago so you may have to scroll down a bit to find it but um yes it is there yeah sure um now Let's talk a little bit about education for BIM that can help with the implementation of BIM. What do you think, like, especially because you, you are you're working in uh, academia, what do you think? Do we have like our education programs tailored to the need for, uh, for BIM specialists and for exactly what we need to get to well in my the the thing that i learned when talking i did an interview with anil uh he is obviously he works with rics and rics being a professional body what it does is it advises on the content to accreditate some of these courses provided in universities so in my discussions with him what I came to realize when talking about designing the future of education in the topic of BIM and digitization as a whole was this balance that professional bodies need to keep in order to make sure that the way they design educational content isn't so rigid and is flexible enough to make way for the transformation of technologies and how it changes our profession very profoundly. And it's actually a difficult task for professional bodies to advise universities on how to design some of these accredited courses in order to ensure that whatever the professional graduates with will be flexible enough with the current times and the current new bands and changes in technology. So 
yes, it's very difficult right now to, obviously there's a lot of uh, accredited programs providing training with relation to BIM. But again, what I understood is that the value is actually to try and create professionals that are agile and nimble enough to move with the times, to move with the changing technologies, the changing demands of the market. So much of the education needs to remain flexible enough and not become so tied down to specific technologies in order for those professionals to be able to adapt, really. It's, it's all about having agility and being able to adapt with the changes that we're seeing in some uh, professions. That is, uh, it's interesting uh, hearing that for me. Uh, because definitely the traditional way of uh, teaching is not working anymore. And because everything is changing to such a rapid pace, right? So exactly this. And like now we need even more than that. Like now it's not enough just to make a, uh, go to university and have a career for 35 years and you get to, uh, to a pension, right? It's not, it's not the case. Like we need to, uh, like to, to be uh valuable in the marketplace and um in the job market uh today we need like uh, from from the last 10 years maybe and and it's going to be only uh quicker and quicker the pace is going to change a lot uh, like we need to to transform ourselves ourselves from early learners to uh, lifelong learners yeah, continuous learners. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And that's the strategy, kind of like the strategic thinking of on the part of universities as well, is how do we foster continuous learning into the education system? Can we make it easier for somebody halfway through their career if they want to pivot into a new profession, make it easy enough for them to do so? to provide continuous learning that's flexible again with more mature students who, but we are seeing that flexibility being imposed on uh, academic institutions right now, given that many of us are having to conduct teaching from home. So it is, I mean, I would say that actually the pandemic has, has perhaps ramped up not just in other sectors, but in education, especially digitization and the openness to come up with new ways of teaching, to to promote remote ways of teaching and education as well. Yeah, yeah, that that's that's uh, that's good. And uh, like you said, we definitely need to have better offers for uh, somebody to be willing to to have the possibility to change a career, especially with such many jobs that go are going to be uh, automatized in, in the future, right? But not only that, if I'm not mistaken, in the US, there are over 70% of people that hate their job. And it's That's so right. it's so like if you go for five years to study, you get a loan that is going to hang you over the entire life, right? So it needs I maybe in UK, definitely it's not like that. And Europe, Europe generally is more accessible uh, studying the um, to university. But having this perspective that being able to deal with this problem, there are many people that are not happy with their job. 
you you cannot know before you work five three four years if it's something you want to do or not right so yeah i think the universities or the institutions can earn a lot if they do that actually uh because they they will find new uh new people uh that that want to 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 learn new things yeah and it, again it's all that transformation is already happening where let's say the bigger universities uh, especially U.S. Ivy League universities partnering with platforms and providing uh, education through online means these these changes are happening and they're ongoing and it is becoming more accessible to get online accreditation from directly from some of these universities without ever having to step into their uh, classrooms. So this is an ongoing transformation. And as you say, I think that here, these types of platforms that we were talking about, you know, platforms are pushing the way for some of the innovation, even in the education sector. Yeah. Now we talk, we talked about uh, official uh, education, like most definitely you don't know why I started this podcast, but I started the podcast uh, because I could not find answer for the questions I have. Like, I could not find any answers for, if I write all the questions I asked you today, for example, here, I did not find that. I, uh, I think not enough people talking about these topics. So th this was one of the reasons I started the podcast. Okay. You said you started yours because uh, you wanted to, to have it as a platform, mostly for uh, research and such. Is there anything else? Or do you see more value to that? Well, it was mainly out of um, just as a researcher, perhaps the frustration that uh, whenever presenting research work that's being done, that we know in the research field is quite known, uh, practitioners would probably look at it and say, huh, I wasn't even aware that this was happening. So it was that that led me to want to create a podcast where researchers could easily share and disseminate what they are doing and discuss what other researchers are doing. And then for industry practitioners to have easier means to access or digest this type of content. So yeah, it's, it's really about in a similar way to what you're trying to do is to create that content, make it available for those that might be looking for it or those that have questions that are still unanswered. Um, and I just started it from the perspective of let's give a voice to academics and researchers. Yes, that's, uh, that's very nice. Very, very well that you've done that. Because like you said, like nobody, like practitioners have not heard about this. I'm thinking maybe uh, this is the missing chain in the entire supply chain, because uh, why anybody doesn't understand why the other ones, the other actors, how they struggle uh, and how they might work together. But uh, maybe if they, if they listen to somebody or uh, they uh, read somewhere that, yeah, of course, this is not going well, uh, they might try to think a little bit about this at least, because right now they are focusing only what, on what they need to deliver. Nobody's thinking too much about anything else. Like everybody's thinking on budgets and they part their part 
So how, how do you expect for innovation to come from there if there is no, like they just, uh, and this combined with the business model that is built in this way, right? It, it won't happen, anything. Like uh, they just need to build and, and uh, do their job, yeah? Yeah, it does require dialogue. It does require to look into both sides. Again, this is the benefit of, and, and that's what I try and do when speaking to other researchers and academics is to give both sides of the story. And academics are very good at looking at it critically. So uh, that's what gives rise to interesting debates and interesting talks when you look at things from multiple perspectives and question some of the underlying assumptions of what the industry may have. I'm, I'm thinking maybe uh, can be also like should be i'm thinking there, there should be an arena there for for uh, the universities or uh, for academia to showcase good examples that companies uh, can tap into it uh, so uh, not only podcast much more than that right uh, workshops and i don't know but Maybe maybe the supply chain doesn't see enough value in this, unfortunately, unfortunately. But I'm thinking like, uh, yeah, this this is something uh, is definitely a need for much more than that. Yeah, yeah, certainly there is, and some universities do try and do activities like this with um, the types of um, alliances and partnerships they form with industry. And that's, in fact, that's what we try and do at Cambridge Service Alliance is to bring industry. So we have industry partners. We disseminate our research to our industry partners and we work with research questions or industry problems that emanate from practitioners or members of the Cambridge Service Alliance and come together once a year, although now we're doing it all virtually to share and disseminate what the results were of those research questions. And yes, many universities, I'm sure, will have similar types of arrangements in a broad array of domains. So it's just, as you say, we may need something, something better to disseminate that, maybe some kind of platform that allows us to come together. Exactly. Uh... This actually, uh, I, I think right now it's too much focus on the programma that every university has and they, they expect too much like everybody what uh, looks there and, uh, and finds everything, right? Uh, like with the era we live right now in, like you see how important YouTube is as a platform. Content creation is very, very important. Like of course you have the, the studies itself, but you, tr you should also have uh, like a, a internal content creating machine or something some persons that do that and highlight things that are important for the industry happening there right so i don't know this is a just came out of nowhere the idea but yeah, it's a good idea yeah i don't know you but if i need to learn something i don't know how to do i i watch in youtube i watch a youtube video how do i yeah. do that why would that comments yeah exactly right like so if I'm uh, just uh, wasting time on YouTube or uh, listening uh, passively while working or something, you just can listen. Yeah, let's see what this university has done the last year or something. 
let's see what they are doing, what they are up to right now or something, right? So, yeah. or if you are a company that are willing to recruit people in the future or students, right? Uh, so you get the insight about what's happening there. Digital marketing is very, very important. And the uh, universities might be still uh, too traditional regarding this, but yeah, you see, like, it might be uh, an idea. Yeah, there's certainly room for improvement for educational institutions to uh, come up to speeds when it comes to digital marketing content creation as such. There is some important topic uh, that I forgot or I, I missed uh, to ask you about. Cambridge Service Alliance is organizing an industry day, which is online and it's free. So it, again, what we were saying, it's accessible to anybody from anywhere across the world. It will be online. It's our annual industry day where we will have speakers from industry like Microsoft, L'Oreal, um, Manchester United, and a startup called Fair Jungle to talk about how they're coping with their services and their business models in the light of the pandemic using innovative digital solutions. So uh, in the case of Manchester United, how have they coped with this huge deficiency of football lovers coming to the stadiums? What are the novel ways that they've tried to engage those same fans with digital solutions? And in the case of Microsoft, it's really looking at healthcare, uh, a very prominent topic in the, in the light of the current situation. This event will take place on the 7th of October. It is all online. I can share with you the yeah, link. Please, please share the link and details with me and uh, I'll make sure to put them in the show notes. You can send my email afterwards, so don't worry. Yeah, brilliant. And uh, this one again, Really, I would say it's an interesting topic for uh, perhaps senior business uh, members, maybe managers, directors who want to learn from what are the big organizations doing to cope with the pandemic. Yeah, yeah, but for everybody it can be insightful, definitely. And uh, it sounds very interesting because there are very many different areas about our life. Yeah. And it, as you say, and we also have a startup there as well, which will give some insight into um, how the startup world is coping because it, it can be very, very strenuous for smaller businesses, the current situation that we're all in. Yeah, that sounds great. Uh, thank you for sharing that. How can uh, somebody get in touch with you then? Okay, so, I mean... The easiest way would probably be on through other platforms like LinkedIn, very quick way to connect and, and interact with people. Uh, the other way is, of course, I would recommend that uh, people, well, they can contact me on my university email address. This is available on the Cambridge website. So it's eap47 at cam.ac.uk. If anybody's got uh, questions to ask in relation to the research that we're doing at the moment with business model innovation and digital twins. The other recommendation is, of course, to go and listen to our podcast Beyond BIM if any of the topics were of interest with relation to the emerging technologies or what is uh, happening in the educational sector. So beyondbim.com, it's on SoundCloud and uh, most 
of the uh, podcast providers. Yes, go watch uh, or listen to Beyond Beam because it's a very good podcast. I'm listening to it. Oh, thank you so much. And we actually opted to start putting content on YouTube as well, because like you said, YouTube is a very convenient means of digesting content, even educational content. I'll send you our recent paper, which was published at Microsoft uh, New Future Work Conference. It talks about um, working from home, audio, video, computer vision, and how to monitor emotional responses and then the home working environment background to gauge well-being. Maybe that's a whole topic on its own. Yeah, goes into yeah. the whole collection of data, maybe too much into surveillance, but it's certainly about using AI to gauge emotional responses of the home office working environment. I'll keep a close eye on, uh, on the business uh, model research you are doing and everything else, of course. Drop me an email um, if you have any other thoughts or ideas, even with relation to the podcasts, because yes. you know, we're, I'm just like you, just doing it for the fun of it. So I'm always keen to collaborate with other people that are doing the same thing. Keep uh, publishing your podcast weekly. Definitely. Thank you so much, Petra. Thank you very much, Erika. It was really nice to have you here. Thank you a lot for taking the time.